Can we change the way we produce food to both meet the needs of humans whilst regenerating our soils and ecosystems? And can we do so in a way that improves the financial viability of farms? These questions are becoming increasingly urgent to answer, and we're here to investigate a promising technique called agroforestry in order to find out how it can help us with these challenges. We'll be interviewing farmers, scientists, and other experts to share with you their experiences, practical advice, and scientific research. Hello, and welcome to the Regenerative Agroforestry Podcast. I'm your host, Etienne. Today, I interview David Brass, the CEO of the Lakes Free Range Egg Company. Almost 30 years ago, he started planting trees in the fields to encourage his laying hens to go and range, which makes him a pioneer in the matter. With about 70 farmers and 2 million birds supplying eggs to his company today, this is an example of agroforestry working at scale. The interview brings forward both practical considerations for the layout and maintenance of trees, as well as explains how they have scaled the tree plantations throughout their suppliers. David is enthusiastic about the numerous benefits of these trees that they have documented throughout the years and various studies. It does seem that there is a very clear case for integrating trees in all poultry production with very limited trade-offs. I wanted to apologize to you listeners as my English was particularly rusty for this interview and my questions a bit fumbly at times. I hope it will still be enjoyable to listen to. Enjoy the episode. Hi David, welcome to the podcast. Uh, hello, pleased to meet you. Yes, great. <laughs> um, let's start by having a bit of an idea of your background and uh, how you got uh, to agroforestry. Um, farming background, really. Started off as a, a farmer with chickens in the Lake District in, uh, in England, uh, north of England. And it was kind of obvious when you were farming that on, on lots of days um, the chickens weren't going outside. They just stayed next near the shed because it was just wide open space outside. And uh, there'd be an odd tree in the middle of a field and you'd see there'd be hundreds of chickens underneath the tree in the shade. So we thought that they obviously liked that. They'd encourage them to go out, so we'd plant a few more. And that's kind of when it started. Um, back, that was 1997. And it's kind of grown from them over the intervening years. We've uh, developed a company selling eggs that's grown to a decent-sized company with another uh, 70 or 80 farmers supplying eggs into us. And all of those have planted trees on their ranges, again, to encourage birds to go outside. And, and also, it's in the intervening years, we've done quite a bit of science to show that those birds are, uh, or those trees are very effective at all sorts of other things, as well as just getting the birds to range outside. Well, that's a, it's a great introduction, and we'll, we'll make sure we go into the detail of all of that. Um, can you give, a, give us a bit more context on um, the company today, uh, how you operate, so we get an idea of, of uh, yeah, what, what scale it's at and what are your customers and how you function? Okay. Um, we are uh, probably a couple of million birds supplying eggs into us now, all free range or organic free range. Uh, we're a specialist organic free range egg supply company now. Uh, and those farms, uh, about 73 or 4 farms, are contracted to us to... Uh, supply eggs into our packing centre. We pack them here, probably a million eggs a day, something like that, a million and a half eggs a day. Uh, put them into retail packs and sell them out to various retail companies in the in the UK or food service companies in the UK. So, specifically those with fairly high uh, requirements for things like uh, woodland planting or uh, range enrichment or bird welfare. 
So you mentioned earlier on that uh, the initial um, the initial reason why you started thinking about birds uh, about including trees with birds was uh, the fact that they weren't necessarily going out much and that you wanted them to colonize the space more effectively. Um, how did you get the idea? Were you working with an organization at the at the time, or were other people already putting in trees for poultry to be uh, roaming further away from the buildings? Uh, no, at that time there was nobody in the UK that was doing that. We were the first, I guess. <coughs> excuse me. We were the first to do that. Um, like I said, back in 1997. Others have followed since uh, because it became a good idea. Uh, it was just reputationally, Ru, we, we're a uh, reputation as a free-range, one of the largest free-range egg companies, specialist free-range egg companies in the UK. And to be uh, not having birds going outside just didn't seem right, so we looked everywhere we possibly could to encourage them to go out. Uh, and that's really where the journey started. Uh, and at that time, there was a uh, charity in the UK called the FWAG Farm Wildlife Advisory Group, and they had advisors who would come onto farm and advise you what trees you should be planting and how you should be planting them. So there was a, a chap called Paul Arkell who uh, worked for that group at the time. He's since they've since packed up, and he set his own company up uh, as an environmental consultant. So we still use Paul. And uh, to be honest, the first couple of years were a disaster. We planted uh, two or three hectares of trees for the chickens, and it was just the wrong sort of trees, the wrong sort of planting. Uh, it's been a 25-year journey uh, that every single year we learn something new, we change things, we, we adapt things, we make them uh, easier to, to look after trees, make it more sensible so farmers will, because if it involves a lot of work and expense, it very quickly gets to be something they don't want to do. Um, so that's been a journey that's developed over the years and it's got quite complex and uh, very structured now but works really well you know it's things like um, the first planting we planted in the UK was to uh, UK Forestry Commission standards which is random two metre spacings and they're impossible to look after if you do that on moorland, where, where the undergrowth doesn't grow particularly quickly, that's fine. But if you do it on grade three agricultural land, the grass grows and, and swamps the trees. So you have to cut it every year. But of course, with random spacing, the only way you can cut it is to get there with a strimmer and strim it, which is really hard work. So people don't want to do it. So after the, after the first couple of years, we start to plant them in rows. So the, the, the rows will follow the contours of the hillside or the contours around the poultry shed so they're not straight rows so they don't look like soldiers they look like uh, normal woodland but we plant the rows four metres apart and the trees two metres within the rows and that means that you can drive up and down with your tractor and a, and a topper on the back to cut the grass <coughs> Excuse me. and it's um, it's not too much like hard work so people are quite happy to do that. It's much easier to sit in an air-conditioned cab and do that to look after the trees than it is to be out on your feet with a strimmer. Uh, and so it's, thing, it's things like that that we developed over the years and those spacings we, we kind of developed to get cover still as rapidly as possible but um, make it possible to mechanically weed them. And then it's, again, we've started planting things like 20% fast-growing. The planting plan usually is just look around the area and see what's growing well in the area and then just copy that in this particular case here it's usually upland uh, limestone woodland which is largely ash based but uh, lots of others there's hollies and, and field maple silver birch aspen that sort of thing really um, but at the same time we plant 20% fast growers because you want the cover for the chickens quickly so we use uh, hybrid willow and poplar as the fast growing species to get uh, 
cover really quickly and it encourages the smaller or the slower growing trees to, to grow uh, better as well. Um, and then you discover that farmers aren't looking after them properly. You make the mistake and everybody makes a mistake because he's a farmer they think he's a forester and they're not. It's a different skill set. And we very quickly found that, that, you know, they let the sheep in and the sheep would take all the bark off the trees and, and they die. And, or the, the, the cattle get in or the horse gets in and knocks them over, that sort of thing. So we, uh, there's a skill to thinning them out and, and beating them up when they die and that type of thing. And so every year Paul now goes around. Uh, technically it's an audit to audit the tree planting on all our farms, our supply farms. What actually he's really going for is he gets a couple of hours of the sole uh, attention of the farmer. So when he's walking around those trees, he can say, you need to be thinning these ones out or you need to be tripping the branches off the bottom of the trees and this is how you do it. So the, the, the you know, prime example of that, I guess, was I went to a farm one day and said, you need to take at least 50% of these trees out. They need thinning, they're too dense. We need to get some sunlight into the base of the canopy. Off I went, come back a month later to the same farm, and the guy had chopped down all the oaks in, and uh, valuable species for biodiversity and left all the poplars and willow. And it wasn't his fault. He just thought, well, I'm leaving the ones that's growing really well and chopping down the ones that aren't. But totally the wrong ending. So hence, Paul goes around now and will say, you can thin those ones out, that one, that one, that one, and actually spray marks the trees, that sort of thing, really. So it's, it's developed as a, as a relationship as we've gone along. Mm. There's actually a lot of really interesting things to, to go into and what you've just said. Uh, one of the things I wanted to bounce back on, though, is the choice of species, because you mentioned that you got it really wrong in the beginning. Uh, and now you seem to have quite, um, I wouldn't say elaborate, but like a very you know good plan with the succession of different types of species and some destined to stay long term. Uh, yeah. Could you tell us a bit more about what mistakes you made initially and how you bounced back and, and, and uh, yeah, the design now nowadays? The, uh, the first plantings we did were funded by the Forestry Commission in the UK, which is very much based towards commercial timber. So you were planting commercial timber species because that's what the grant funding came for. And actually, when you looked at it, it wasn't suitable for what we were wanting, really. Uh, we're much more value to us is the whole... We're in a high animal welfare production system with free-range poultry. So you, you really need to go that on with your biodiversity benefits of what you're doing, and that's native species local to the area, because that's what the bi local biodiversity wants. Uh, so gradually over the years, that the, the way that those species have been planted and the, and the mix of them has changed, and, and also we you know we have we take we have farms in, in Shropshire, which is in the Midlands of the UK, and farms up in Scotland in fairly high levels. So uh, and some in Cumbria, which is where I'm based, right on the seashore, where it's just pure sand up to uh, limestone mountains. So there's quite, quite a diversity of what we, what we plant. There's, there's no wrong tree, to be fair. Um, we have uh, an odd farmer that uh, uh, plants apple trees because he wanted to have a little bit of agroforestry and, and make cider as a, as a sideline, so, so he does that. It still suits the chickens. and We're not going to die, uh, die in a ditch over what type of trees people want to plant. We suggest, and then if they want to do something else, fine. It's interesting because that was one of the questions I wanted to think through with you. I know that in your case, uh, you've gone for like uh, essentially wild trees, uh, mainly for their ecosystem services to your operation. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, with your knowledge of how uh, poultry uh, functions, would you find that realistic for people to include productive trees? Uh, let's say, you know, maybe not in your climate, but in France, it could be walnuts 
uh, it could be different nuts. Do you see that as something potentially interesting or do you kind of think, well, that's a bit too complicated and at the end of the day, it's already complex enough to be farming poultry, you know? Oh, no, 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 no. It, almost any tree is a good tree. And I think most people phrase nowadays, right tree, right place. And I think that's absolutely fair. Uh, if people want to plant walnuts, walnuts actually have a, a sideline that they're very good at uh, keeping flies away from poultry units, apparently, so, so that the, the story goes, so that they could be useful around poultry sheds just to keep the flies down, uh, which you can get problems sometimes in, in summer with, uh, with flies and, and neighbours. Again, the, the only ones that I've ever come across, I think with obvious ones like you, you, you have to be a bit careful about, um, and the, a lot of the willows you have to be a little bit careful of. We plant hybrid willow, but it's quite quickly, probably within 10 years, we, that we fell it out. And you have to be careful what you do with those branches when you fell them, because willow has a, a, a lot of willow species have quite high oxalic acid uh, content, aspirin, effectively, they have a source of aspirin. But the uh, oxalic acid will burn, if, they, if hens eat too much of it, it'll burn their tongue. And so they won't eat after that, and so they can starve because they, they can't eat because they're going to... So you have to be a little bit careful with some, but it's very, very few. Uh, the vast majority of, of species you can use. And it, like I said earlier, it's, it's been a journey, and very early on it was Forestry Commission, then it was more what actually grows in the native local area, and some of the work, that we've done quite a bit of science and research over the years on, on the benefits to poultry and the benefits to biodiversity. And what it did show was you plant native species in their area, and they're very good at linking other areas of biodiversity it, together into corridors that, that uh, massively improves the local biodiversity. Uh, and then that was uh, and just looking after that and how you look after the farmers and how you uh, advise the farmers to grow them was the next few years' worth of development. Uh, and then we started looking at what would be best for, uh, for customers in the sort of mid-2005, 2008-ish, uh, as to, to make sense to their profiles as to how they wanted to develop for the product. And then in the last probably seven, seven years, I think, we've gone more down the route of uh, sequestration and the benefits to, to soil health, uh, sequestration of CO2, but particularly ammonia. They're very good at uh, trees at absorbing ammonia. Uh, and poultry units, not just poultry units to be fair, uh, any intensive livestock species, dairy, beef, sheep, pigs, all produce lots of ammonia that uh, trees can take 30, 40, 50% of it out of the uh, plume from the production site without any uh, artificial input. You just let the trees get on with it. And that's, that's changed the mix a little bit. We, we didn't really want to go for uh, pine species that are a bit too commercial. We went away from those. But actually now when you want year-round uh, greenery, we plant more, uh, probably 15 20% of the plantings have pine in them. So at least there's some greenery, leaf area to absorb ammonia year-round. And it's interesting, we've just, just finished, a, it's the ART project it's called. It's publicly published by Natural England in the UK, so it's government funded. Uh, the uh, Ammonia Reduction from Trees, the ART project. Uh, quite a few years uh, I tend to have a reputation in the UK poultry industry for hugging trees and bunnies and because of all the, the, the emphasis I put on planting trees and benefits to, to poultry and I've been asking for quite a few years for somebody to actually do the research because the, the individual scientific research had been done by the um, CEH um, I've done the, the scientific work in that for DEFRI years ago but hadn't done it on commercial farms and so I was to say, that's fine having the science, but can we actually do it on commercial farms? So then we can go to the environment agency in the UK and say, look, this is what actually happens on commercial farms with trees. Give us some benefit for us. 
when you're looking at the Clean Air Act. Um, so <coughs> we did that research over the last couple of years, and that was quite interesting. It was, it's fun to do. I love working with scientists on those sort of projects and put the agricultural spin into that. So that's, that's proven our, our benefits to, uh, to ammonia reduction over the last couple of years, which is interesting. Because you, you talk about you know, testing ideas against uh, actually what happens on commercial farms, uh, I know that in some more, uh, let's say, small-scale projects or alternative projects, people have been interested in also the contribution that trees might make to a uh, chicken's diet, either through like protein-rich leaves or because you have fruit you know, that gets full of worms and, and can be valued. Do you see that as like idealism? Do you see that? As, could it work at scale? Like, what, What's your view on that? It's something we haven't concentrated on. There will be some input to that, and they do eat some of the apples and things when, uh, if you have, uh, happen to have crab apple or something in the, in the planting. But it's not something we've done much research on at all. Um, largely, you have to be a bit careful in that you don't want to dilute the diet of the chicken too much. These guys are egg-laying machines. They're genetic Rolls-Royces. You don't want to be diluting the diet with too much bulk because that's bad for the welfare, really. They, they will produce eggs. You can't stop them producing eggs. They're egg-laying machines. Uh, so if you don't feed them the correct diet, that can have detrimental impacts on their health and welfare. So you have to be a little bit careful with that. But they do grub around outside. They, they find lots of worms and grubs and insects in the undergrowth. And I think trees probably are beneficial to that compared to open grassland. The other topic I was wondering is just, you know, if we have any poultry farmers listening to us, uh, it'd be interesting for them to understand really what that implies for their day-to-day operation to include trees. So let's say you're a poultry farmer and all of a sudden um, you, you believe that you should be including trees in the, for the poultry. Uh, what do you see are the major things to master in terms of skills or in terms of organization of your workload? To be fair, once they're planted, they, they look after themselves. Uh, chickens don't bother them too much. The ones near the, near the shed, within, we, we never plant trees closer than 20 metres to the shed. You don't want leaves to get in the uh, downspouts and that sort of thing, really. Um, so you'll have an area of stone or clean area between the shed and the trees at 20 metres. Then you'll plant your trees in. Some of them they'll dig out. Uh, the hens love digging and scratching in, in the dust, so some of them they will dig out. So you maybe protect those with... Uh, some people put an old, an old scrap tyre around them and with plastic down to protect them. Uh, it's one of the easiest ways. Most people have tree guards that work reasonably well. Um, unfortunately, we still end up using plastic ones because the ones that are naturally um, disintegrate uh, with times and are not plastic-based, the chickens tend to eat them very quickly. <laughs> they quite like them. So we haven't found a, a substitute for plastic as yet. Um, and then it, it's, it's relatively simple. It's beating up, which maybe is a couple of days in the first year, for, for our first or second year. Then for maybe five years after that, there's a little bit of uh, thinning of the grass between the rows. But like I say, you can do that with a tractor and topper, so it's not too, uh, too much of a hardship. Um, then after that, there's probably every now and again, half a day, two or three times a year, you'll take the lower branches off the trees because you don't want them... You don't want them to be too low. If you get uh, low branches, things like hawthorn, which grow very close to the ground, and then the grass grows up underneath them, and you get a, an area where the grass has reached the, the, the base level of the trees, the, it's nice and dark, and hens will go and lay eggs in there. So you want to keep an open space between the bottom of the leaf canopy and the top of the grass canopy so that you don't, there's, there's, they won't lay eggs outside, which isn't a problem as long as you do that. But after that, you know, for the next 150 years, they do it themselves. 
It's, it's brilliant, really. The other alternative is to put an artificial ammonia scrubber in, which uses thousands and thousands of pounds of electric, costs you tens of thousands of pounds to buy, and uses sulfuric acid all the time. So you look at the options. <laughs> which do you go for? It's a no-brainer, really. And on the... Because you mentioned that you then started planting in lines, so it means you cut the grass between the tree lines, but you just leave whatever grows between trees on the line then because you have no yes. way of, of cutting that with a strimmer, yeah? Okay. And, and you don't need to. Yeah. You're still happy with the growth. And the, and the protection, you, you don't fence any... It's just tree guards. There's no systematic fencing of the tree lines or whatever. Uh, you just have the tree with a plastic tree guard and whatever few trees are damaged, then you know that's just a certain percentage and moving on. That's right, effectively, yes. We, uh, we do uh, fence them uh, right around the outside with stock-proof fencing to keep other stock out, sheep and cattle, that sort of thing, and to maybe rotate the paddocks so you'll have maybe three or four paddocks outside your uh, poultry shed and they'll go into different ones, so not all of them are uh, the whole area isn't puddly all winter. We have quite a lot of rain here, a metre of rain here, so it, it, it can be puddly in winter, so you need to rotate the paddocks. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting just, you know, kind of concluding this, uh, this part, which was really aiming to understand how you put things into place. Like, I, I was wondering what technical assistance you'd had, but actually it just seems like a lot of trial and error and really building that knowledge in the house over the last, you know, 25 years, or I, I don't remember exactly how many years it's been, but uh, yeah, there's been a lot of that then. The trouble, it's, it's a problem with being first, isn't it? When there is no advice on how to look after trees and how to plant and look after trees for poultry, you have to make it up as you go along. And we've had a good team. <coughs> There's uh, myself, uh, Paul as well, and then lately Roger, my head of agriculture. And between us, every year we, we've, at the end of the season, we'll look at how those plantings have done, what they look like, what we should be doing, what is the next step, the next development, or are we happy where we are? And I don't think there's been a year where we haven't changed something. But we kind of, I think we're kind of there now. We, there's, there's massive benefits, massive benefits. So you may as well utilize as many of them as, as possibly can. Where are you planting at the moment then? Because I assume that on your, uh, your farm or your initial site, uh, that was the first place where you started planting trees those number of years ago. So now are you kind of at full capacity on the number of trees you want in the landscape? You're always developing and always changing. Um, most of the range areas is planted with about 20% of the range is planted with trees, which is about right probably. Some people uh, put more in and we'll probably end up keeping adding to that. Uh, we've changed a little bit how we, how we work in that up until six or seven years ago, you, the aim was that you went out into dappled sunshine. So there's a sort of shady 50% shade, 50% open sunshine through the, throughout the tree canopy. That gives you, uh, keeps the grass growing underneath the trees rather than just being leaf litter and also is, is good for invertebrates. Um, so it's, from a biodiversity point of view, it was the way to do it. But in the last few years, we've changed that in that you need a dense canopy to absorb the ammonia. So you don't want those open spaces because that lets the ammonia escape without having to force it through the leaves of the trees. So what we're changing now is those areas that's near to the shed, within sort of 50 to 80 metres of the shed, we will um, keep quite dense and not thin them out too much. It's a dense canopy. Uh, just raise the base by taking branches off the bottom. And that's meant that without now planting further away from the shed with the more open, dappled, sunny, uh, gladed-type uh, planting in the, maybe the next 50 metres outside that. So that's adding quite a bit more planting to those areas. Um, and at the same time, it's... 
we still get new farms uh, or people building new units. Uh, there's always new units to, to, to keep processing and developing and adding tree planting to. So to, to sum up uh, where your design is at the moment is you, you leave uh, an area around the buildings without any trees to avoid any leaves coming in. Um, and you were saying, what, 20 meters? Or are, yeah. you extending that, are you extending that now? Or are you still putting the first trees at 20 meters? 20 meters is fine, yeah. Okay. And then you, you put quite a dense layer of trees, like, uh, and that would be on how many meters, for example? You would have several lines of trees very close to each other then? Yeah, about the next 50 to, uh, 50 to 100 meters. Okay. And that almost becomes a woodland then? Uh, yes, just, yes. Just an elevated woodland. And then yeah. behind that, then you'll go back. Uh, will you have also clearings without any trees, or do you just go for this dappled kind of homogenous savanna um, planting on the rest of the land? Both. If, if people want, and, and, and to some extent on our own farms, it's it's what the surroundings are. We have one particular uh, farm that's on a, on a south-facing sandy slope, which is uh, very good for low... Uh, intensity uh, grassland so wildflowers grassland it's sandy areas it's not particularly fertile hasn't been ploughed for hundreds of years so you don't want to plant trees on a lot of that so we tend to leave open gladed spaces with just sort of trees uh, clumps of trees dotted around and then others uh, is very much 50% glade 50% uh, shade and I was wondering, uh, I don't know if you have issues with predators then, because uh, I know that some people have issues with prey bir uh, birds of prey uh, here in France, uh, or any other predators. Do the trees change anything on that level, or not really? Like, have you noticed any difference? Uh, the main aerial predators that we have in the UK are buzzards, or red kites, and they will take chickens. So by planting trees, you uh, avoid that uh, predator but the other main predator we have is foxes and trees are good for foxes so yes you have to uh, on the outside of the range people tend to plant foxproof fences to keep um, keep foxes out if they can it yeah. can be a challenge but i assume that that's you did that before anyway no i mean that's right if you have uh, so it's not really uh, any additional cost or whatever okay no that's right. interesting yeah i wanted to yeah go a bit more into how you work with farmers because one of the topics we're interested with, Dimitri, is always about scaling. And in a sense, that's what you've done in your own network because you've started things on your farm and then ultimately you were mentioning that you work with 70 to 80 farmers. And I assume uh, that takes also organization and skill and, and, and I'm really interested in the process of how you're able to uh, scale those agroforestry plantings throughout like quite a big acreage and with a lot of different people to address and train. Um, yeah. Tell us a bit more about working with your network of farmers. Uh, it's, it, it just takes a while, I guess. Um, Paul's very good at visiting every year. That's a, that's a key thing. But at the same time, we as a company will provide skills to uh, show people what a planting, an ideal planting plan for their particular farm would be, in consult, consultation with them, of course. Um, and it's quite interesting. We, we do a little bit of work with the Woodland Trust in the UK through one of a contact through one of our retail customers. And uh, about 10 years ago, the Woodland Trust asked if we would ask our farmers some questions when Paul went around. And one of the questions was, would you plant any more trees? And at that time, we had 62 farmers, and 60 of them said no. And two said yes, they would. Uh, 
at that time is probably when there was a lot of fairly young plantings. Uh, they, they asked the same question last year, 10 years later, and it was exactly the opposite way around. 60 said they would and two said they wouldn't, which I was no. astonished by. Mm. But when you think about it, they grow on people. They grow on you. You, just, you walk through these trees now. They're, they're 20, 30, 40 feet high. They, they have... Um, barn owls living in them, they have squirrels living in them, and you, can, and you can walk through and see red squirrels and and it leaves you can see it leaves something and I think people understand that they're, they're leaving something for the future, it's here for 150 years it's them that did it, and they kind of grow on people, so it's initially it was it was cajoling, it was chasing it was well you can't supply eggs to us if you haven't got them, uh, we pay them significantly more for eggs from uh, where they have tree planting which helps they have to look after them, and they know that. But it's it's just little steps. It's it's not a big. We have the plan. We the plan develops. We know what it is. That is how you can plant them. We'll supervise the planting. We buy the trees. Um, the, all they've got to do is plant them, and then look after them. So that that's that w- the deal initially is like if you if we're going to buy your eggs, you have to plant trees, or is it we give you a premium, but you don't have to? Uh, no, no, they have to plant trees. Okay. That's part, part of, of the part of the contract. Okay. Yeah. And then uh, you have now all the expertise within the company then to do the design, to do the consultation. You have those skills uh, yourself, or do you work with a third party that will do that audit and do that consulting with them? Yeah, we still work with Paul. You know, twenty five years down the line, we still work with Paul as an independent consultant. Um, he's the guy with the knowledge. He knows where the grant funding is for, for funding. He knows. Uh, what tree needs to go where, and more especially, actually, what tree doesn't need to go where. Um, we're in a very area of outstanding natural beauty, a very sensitive landscape, so you have to be careful where you plant trees. They don't all want to go everywhere. You need to think about it. And, and that's what I try to get over to people, that actually there's no one size fits all. There's no bad tree planting, as long as you have th- thoughts about where it should be planted and how it should be planted. Okay, maybe don't get... If you can't plant it downwind of the chicken shed because you've got uh, some type of particular protected pasture land with wildflowers down there, you maybe won't get the ammonia benefits, but you'll still get the welfare benefits and production and performance benefits if, if you have to go upwind. You know, it's, it's not the end of the world, but you just have to work with your farmers. Sure. And you were mentioning the grants, and I guess that's um, one big aspect of it. Um, I wonder, both, you know, 25 years ago when you started planting trees, and now, uh, how does the funding function, you know? Is that something that you manage to get fully funded by uh, private or public grants? Or is that something that your company has to invest in because it sees the value uh, as part of the production process? Initially, it was uh, forestry commission planting, and then we discovered that didn't work because of the random random spacing and planting uh, they, they wouldn't go to the trees in rows type funding so we just did our own thing and accepted the fact there was no grant funding the, we've done quite a bit of scientific research over the years with, a, with an organisation called the Farm Animal Initiative which is the, the old Oxford University Research Farm is where it's based and that's 2007-2012 there's a long term plan there with hundreds of thousands of data points on production and performance that showed that you get uh, better production, less mortality, better feather cover, better production from birds that have access to trees. So it pays for itself. And so you, you know that sells it to farmers as well. Once they're planted, they don't have a lot of cost, and it's, it pays for itself anyway. Um, you get less mortality, you get better drainage, uh, you get the CO2, now you get the ammonia as well. So it's, it, it is uh, sellable to farmers. 
The grant funding, like you say, was Forestry Commission to start with, and then for years and years and years there wasn't anything that was suitable. Uh, probably 2018, in fact it was outside most uh, European single farm payment schemes, it was outside of those because forestry isn't counted, uh, which was a downside for tree planting, I guess, but the benefit to the farmer outweighing what funding you would get. Since 2018, the, uh, the UK has looked at a lot of the ammonia um, reduction targets and they're not achieving them. The, there's grant funding for ammonia uh, scrubbing machines for, for poultry sheds in, in Northern Ireland, uh, uh, mainland and some of Wales. And p- farmers were getting the funding for them and putting them in to keep the local planning authorities happy, but couldn't afford the electric to run them. So they've never been run, so it was a waste of time. And I think Northern Ireland very quickly realised that one, that over the, the, the 20 years they've been funding these machines, actually the ammonia had gone up, not down. So... Like it's about five years ago, they were quite keen. I was, I was speaking about trees at a uh, conference in, in Edinburgh, actually. Um, Centre for Environment and Hydrology, that's a CEH. It was a, it was a CEH conference in Edinburgh, and a representative of their government was there. And so it was interesting, the fact that ammonia uh, reduction can be helped by tree planting. So they were one of the first uh, of the UK devolved governments to uh, put grant funding in place for p- poultry uh, and well, not just poultry, intensive livestock uh, ammonia reduction. So it is grant funded in the in Northern Ireland has been for quite a few years now, uh, and it's looking as though the uh, the Brexit related re, re uh, writing of regulations in the UK will mean that it'll be grant funded in uh, England and Scotland as well. Uh, and I'm talking to the Welsh government on on a, on a similar sort of scheme. So it's. It's just coming to the fore now that you can see for all the benefits. I mean, you get benefits for animal welfare, you get benefits for for clean air. So the Clean Air Act is coming into the UK, and they're not quite sure how people farmers will uh, will, will react to that challenge. Well, if they plant trees, it may as well be funded. And they, they, I think the grant funding um, authorities understand that you pay a farmer to look after these for the, for 15 years, and for the next 150 after that, they look after them themselves. So there isn't a lot of cost to it, but all the benefit is still there and, and growing bigger every year. So it's it's an area where funding is starting to come into. But before uh, that actually happens, or before you can fund all of that, uh, you you your company is still the one uh, investing in the trees on the farms on your suppliers' farms. Then that's right. Yes, it, it, it works. It's not a big cost. It, it's interesting. You mentioned that the rollout as well. That uh, the work we did. Uh, with FAI clearly showed there's a bit higher welfare, uh, there's less mortality, uh, better production, better quality of product and better welfare, less feather pecking. Uh, you mentioned how do you roll trees out. The, uh, the RSPC, uh, uh, Royal Society of Protection of Animals UK, have an assurance scheme for, for farmers, poultry farmers and, well, any farmers, but mainly, mainly poultry farmers. And because we clearly showed there's better welfare to planting trees, it became part of their code of practice. So anybody who is RSPCA assured as a farmer has to plant um, their range with trees. So it, and so we've planted as a company probably quarter of a million trees, something like that. Uh, there's probably a million and a half more across the UK as part of that code of practice. And it's only been done because of the research that showed that uh, it was higher animal welfare. So it's interesting if you want to get things like trees rolled out across the country, get uh, codes of practice for welfare involved. I wonder what, why is that the case that it, it, increase, it decreases feather picking? Um, do you have any hypothesis on how it affects their behaviour? The science didn't particularly show why that was, and to be fair, we hadn't we hadn't really 
figured that into the uh, the piece of research work. But the understanding probably is two things. One, it makes them range better, so there's less uh, density of poultry in the shed. So during the day, they're out and about running about outside rather than sat inside picking up diseases off each other and annoying each other, so they start to feather peck. Um, and at the other side, the ones that do go outside are getting much more exercise and uh, because they've got more space between them, they don't feather peck as much, they don't get bored, there's other things to do. There's bugs and, and leaves to play with and trees to play with so they don't play with eating each other. So I think it's, I think it's just giving them more space, really. And that would be the same factors that explain the increase in production then? I mean, it's basically everything's linked, right? It's because yes. they also have more space and less stress that they produce better. Exactly. I remember when we had our initial conversation before recording, you mentioned a figure. Uh, I think you were able to say that in a certain amount of time, you were already paying back uh, the trees that you planted uh, through these gains in production. Could you remind me this figure? I don't know if you still have it in your mind, but that was quite fascinating. Yeah, the, the, the research showed that you get 2% less mortality and 2% more class A or edible, human edible eggs uh, in a 16,000 bird unit, which is an average sort of UK uh, free range unit. That, that works out at around about £3,000 per year better performance from your, from your birds. That's before you start to count all the uh, environmental benefits. So it's that pays for around about the tree planting you would do on a, a normal range. You know, that, that side of the flock, you, there's eight hectares of range, you plant 20% of it, so you're looking around about uh, two hectares, a couple of thousand trees. It just about covers the trees in the gardens. Well, that's interesting, yeah. And then every year it gets better then. That's right, yeah. Uh, Us here, you know, because we've had trees planted for a long time, like nearly 30 years, um, they're 40 feet high, so we're quite regularly thinning those trees because they're, they're still quite dense. And that, uh, <clears throat> that biomass is, is, is chipped up and goes into the factory and heats the factory and all the wash water in the factory for washing trays and floors and machines and things. So we don't actually import any solid fuel of any sort, be that uh, gas or, or oil, because we have our own biomass. That's really interesting. I mean, uh, recently, uh, my colleague Dimitri recorded an episode with uh, a company producing biomass. And although you've taken a very biodiversity approach to, to this problem, I imagine that you could also um, looking, be looking at highly productive systems where you're getting all these benefits, but you have also planted trees with a more like production-oriented uh, uh, goal with uh, you know, quick biomass uh, species, uh, popular, etc., and, and have actually you know, uh, a high-production biomass system. You know? I mean, it's just a hypothesis, but it's just interesting to see that there seems to be like, a lot of options around including trees um, into poultry production and, and a lot of potential there to, to build really interesting systems. Yes, like you say, that you can have just about any sort of tree. The only type of biomass that doesn't work is willow. Okay. Because it's invariably a coppice in willow, so it's lots of very dense, low branches, uh, low stems that, that, that it's impossible to get poultry out of. So when you want to put them back in the shed at night, it's impossible to get them out. And there are lots of areas where they can lay eggs and things, so... We have a couple of farmers that tried coppice willow and it's, it didn't work for, for poultry. But that's about the only thing I can think of. All the other stuff has, has worked, yeah, pine or whatever. I just wanted to go back to the work you're doing with farmers because we mentioned how um, their perception really changed over these last few years. And I was wondering initially what were the oppositions, what were the reluctance uh, around trees? Primarily change of use of land. 
at that time land in the UK was probably £30,000 a hectare, something like that. And woodland was five. So they were looking at the the value of their farms and saying, I'm turning land from £30,000 a hectare into £5,000 a hectare. Why should I be doing that? And there is an argument to that, I guess. Uh, What we have in the UK is that those values have got very much closer together just recently because of the requirement and need for biomass and demand for land for planting biomass and uh, things like uh, nature conservation for new housing developments and ecological benefits of new housing developments and CO2 sequestration. So the, the, the value of uh, land for woodland has gone up significantly to, to be almost matching uh, agricultural land values. So that's, that reason has largely gone. But even so, in, in the big scheme of things, we were paying these guys five pence a dozen each more uh, for their eggs for planting trees. And that would way outweigh... Uh, for the sake of planting two hectares of your land for, for, for a chicken shed, the, the loss in capital cost of that, um, of planting trees on it. The only areas where we have significant problems really is on rented land, where it isn't the farmer's own land, and then it can be more of a chance if the landlord just does not want trees. Not a lot you can do then. But it's, it's interesting because that premium is actually quite significant, and I'm, I'm wondering what your motivations are uh, and were. Is it, at some point, uh, did you, are you doing this really out of your values and, and, your, and out of care for you know, the environment and biodiversity? Or do you really see a business case for doing this and a way of also distinguishing yourself from your competitors? Like I'm, I'm really interested to see because you know, it's, it's quite a strong statement. If I'm being totally honest, no, it's not the saving the planet's biodiversity angle that's driving it and an ecological benefit angle that's driving it. It's pure commercial farming, staying in business and, and uh, selling a product for a higher value than, than you would if you didn't have all of that in place. But at the same time, it's a nice that comes for free alongside what you're doing. Of course, because that's something then you, that you're able... Um, to you're able to sell your eggs at a premium, I think, compared because of this of, of, of these trees, because of what you're showing uh, in terms of animal welfare, etc. I have no idea how you know the your egg business functions and and who you who you're selling to, but that's really something today that's valued by your customers. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Our particular customers are, are some of the uh, food service and retail in the UK that uh, prides themselves on not just their uh, the quality of their product, but how it's produced, and we particularly concentrate on on that market. It's 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 not a commodity market, um, and if you're producing a non-commodity product, a high welfare, high provenance, uh, ethically produced product, you may as well be selling it to the people who are demanding that as as part of their offering. But uh, in a sense, you were almost uh, one step before everyone because I, I I don't know you know 25 years ago I was like five years old or four years old, so I don't remember much about that time. But I'm, I'm assuming that uh, this whole concern about food quality has increased uh, dramatically in the last few years and that has changed a lot. Was there already that uh, customer base that was ready to pay for that premium at the time you started planting trees? I'll have to say I'm a business genius. But actually, <laughs> but actually it's just blind luck. Um, 1995, when we set the company off, we, we were selling only high welfare, uh, free-range or organic free-range products from uh, ethically produced 
that was the business statement at the time, and that just I guess it's luck that uh, that the rest of the the world has come down that road and met us. And uh, do you see other actors in the poultry um, production uh, starting to bring in trees? Is that something that's picking up? You would say in general because it's there seems to be quite a strong case for it. Or are you still uh, do you, are you still quite unique in that respect? Uh, no, with the with the rollout in some of the welfare organisations demanding uh, range planting, that certainly helped a lot of people on that route. But you think of the things that that it does. It gives you better performance, so you make more money. So that's a good start. It reduces the runoff from your uh, range, so it reduces flooding and improves the percolation rate of water into your range, so it's drier. Uh, it absorbs ammonia, which is clean air is a huge thing at the moment. It sequesters carbon dioxide, which everybody's demanding at the moment. So you can plough your chicken range, but at the same time it can make you money from absorbing carbon dioxide. So every single piece of, 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 of COP26, environmental provenance, uh, reducing carbon, save the planet. It fits with planting trees for your chickens, mm. uh, as well as things like uh, nitrate runoff is significant, <coughs> or is a significant problem in the UK from some of these intensive farms. If you get the right, if you plant the right type of trees, that puts more carbon into the ground. The um, you put more carbon into the ground, there's a direct link with the carbon nitrogen ratio, so you store more nitrogen in your ground. Uh, so there's, there's, there's just numerous benefits for, for planting trees that has meant that, that it's a sensible thing for farmers to do going forward. Mm. And, you know, we've mentioned a few times um, carbon and sequestration. And because, uh, you know, you're giving talks and you're talking with people from government, I was wondering, do you see carbon credits or, uh, you know, payment for ecosystem services as becoming part of your business model? Uh, because there's been, you know, talks about this for a while um, about Exactly, you know, paying premiums to farmers or subsidies for um, sequestering carbon, for, you know, uh, delivering good quality water, for, um, uh, you know, potentially reducing uh, ammonia pollution. All these things, um, you know, seem obvious, but it's quite hard to put into place because you obviously need to quantify things, you need to measure them, you need to certify. And I'm wondering what you, how you see these things evolving in the future. You're right, it's very early days, it's baby steps at the moment, isn't it? But there's just, uh, it's things like ammonia reduction, it's a legal requirement. By 2030, you have to reduce your ammonia by 15%. S simple government legislation, so you need to comply with that type of thing. Uh, carbon dioxide, there's uh, just starting to be a um, early days in carbon uh, credit, government-sponsored carbon credit, so you sell your carbon credits to the government on, a, on a, a formula they have, and then they supply them on to... Uh, whoever wants carbon credits. So that's a market that's just starting to develop and I think will get bigger as it becomes more important and, it's, and, and people need to get near a net zero. And another thing that, that's kind of coming into it is uh, new developments, new housing developments in particular uh, in the UK have to have um, a nitrate uh, plan nowadays, which uh, and trees are good at holding groundwater and storing nitrates. And at the same time, they, ha they all have to have an environmental plan. So you're not allowed to go and chop down trees and woods and hedges and greenfield sites and put houses on it and have no benefit for the environment. So a lot of those, uh, particularly in the city areas where you can't plant lots of trees within the estate to, to recoup that, um, they're looking to purchase those credits from farmers out in the countryside. So it, again, that's a market that hasn't... Uh, It's there, and people pay money for it, but it, it, the, the background that you were saying earlier about uh, 
having it accredited and counted for and assessed so you can't sell the same carbon 15 times, is that, that area regulation still a bit of develop? It's early days. Mm. But, you know, if it, if it does develop and if they do manage to do that, it, it could become a significant source of income for, um, you know, farmers um, and, and tree plantations. Um, but listening to you, it seems like such a no-brainer to put trees uh, and integrate trees into poultry production. Um, do you see any kind of obstacles or reason people why why people wouldn't do it? You know, either on in terms of uh, you know legal. You were mentioning you know the the type of of land that's really interesting. I don't know if you see any other kind of big picture uh, issues that might prevent that from being scaled up. A lot of the big picture issues are quietly being uh, whittled away by the changing government regulation as to uh, the benefits of, of, of trees and tree planting. Uh, the government is keener to have people planting trees, so there's, there's less issues with things like the single farm payment where you just didn't get any payment at all if you had planted trees on it. Well, any new grant schemes that's coming ahead uh, tend to encourage trees rather than discourage them. And I, th- I think there's the whole... The whole atmosphere has changed in the last five years. And I think one of the other things you're getting is that a lot of uh, NGOs that over the past 20 years have constantly battled for their little bit of NGO land and now all on a bigger picture. They all kind of try to work together on the whole environmental uh, linking networks of, of environmentally different schemes, be that wildflowers or, or, or wildlife welfare or biodiversity. So we're all kind of going in the same direction rather than everybody pulling in different directions. I think it's been a big change in the last last five years. But you need to have someone that's acting a bit like your company as, as, a, as a broker in between and that is able to go and see the farmers and say, listen, we have the technical expertise, we have the person who can help you, we have the trees, we know the nurseries, and it's just a question of... And we have the economic incentive. In a sense, like... There would need to be many other companies, uh, or the government should take that role of a kind of uh, broker. But I guess that that role that you had is very crucial because probably that the farmers that now have planted trees working with you wouldn't have already. Maybe they would have one day, but you know that accelerated a lot. Uh, yes, you're absolutely right. But there's there's quite a few um, companies in the UK now. The major retail, uh, which are insisting on on that being part of their supply chain, or Uh, some of the bigger uh, other egg companies in the UK are seeing the benefits. And what will really drive a lot of that is that, uh, particularly in the UK, I don't know if it's the same across the rest of Europe, is that eggs are relatively uh, carbon efficient. So a lot of retail uh, who have all their net zero uh, targets and will be net zero in eggs by 2035 or whatever, it's an easy option to start with. And so a, a lot of those farmers are now getting, that, that supply to those type of companies, uh, are now getting carbon audits. And on the back of that, things like solar panels and trees can become very much to the fore. And, and so if those farmers who had resisted and just planted the minimum amount that the welfare organisers recommend, they'll be planting more because mm. of the, all the incentive is there to do that. Mm. But from from what I understand, it seems that the the change, at least in, in the poultry sector, is coming more from the top down by buyers saying, "Listen, this is you know our list of criteria, and this is the conditions we want in our products." That's where the most change is coming from. Would, is that correct? At the moment, yes. Probably at the moment, yes. Yeah. 
It's big picture, isn't it? That's one of those drivers. The, the other one is, is government, and a lot of the way their subsidies and, and funding is going is, is another driver. Uh, public perception of the actual farming community is probably another driver. There's, you know, there's lots of drivers that they weren't, weren't there five years ago. So it's, it's somebody with their head in the sand who doesn't seriously think about at least planting some of their range in trees at the moment. Hmm. And what you said about government, it seems that in that sense, Brexit was positive, uh, at least in terms of agroforestry, that you, you, it was maybe easier to get that message through to um, the government because it was m maybe less of a big structure. I don't know. Uh, is that how you see the, that has evolved linked to before when it was the cap payment system? Um, um, I think government can probably react quicker. I would imagine that Europe will get down the same road uh, eventually, but uh, having one government and not having to talk to every other of the 27 to decide what you're going to do is, is, is mean we can react quicker. Although we're still, there's still a long way to go on that. There's still, there's still quite a bit that needs changing that, that doesn't get changed. Mm. But uh, certainly from an agricultural point of view, I think we get uh, lighter touch, uh, quicker movement. And, and it means that, you know... Uh people working with agroforestry or convinced of its benefits have been effective in delivering that story uh, and that message through to government, which is, I guess, the point of effective lobbying and, and when you're trying to bring in positive change. So it, it is interesting to see that uh, this message seems to be going through then. It's not a difficult message, though, is it? You know, you, you, you can have your acid scrubber with concentrated sulfuric acid going onto farm using... Tens of thousands of pounds of electric every year and costing you hundreds of thousands to buy in the first place. Or you can have some trees. And they'll do pretty well the same job. And they'll do it for 150 years for free. Okay, they'll only take 50% of it, they won't take all of it. But, you know, that's just an argument. They just, as well as all the other stuff you need, like manure treatment and dietary change for proteins and that sort of stuff. It's just such an easy win and so obvious that uh, even government has to take notice of that. There's still, there's still, and there's still challenges. You, you know, you plant a tree, and it's a whip in a tube for three or four, three or four years. Um, so you have to work on crediting people before the trees are actually sequestering ammonia, because they don't start sequestering much ammonia for, for at least the first ten years. So there's still that step that the government hasn't taken as yet. We just alluded a few times to the research. I don't know if you feel like it's necessary that we synthesize or have, you know, just that you make sure that you talked about, uh, about all the different research you did or if you feel like we've mentioned it enough because we've mentioned it in different topics. But it was interesting the type of research you, led, uh, you carried out. Do you feel like there's anything to add on that or are you just happy with what we said so far? To be honest with you, we've covered most of the research work we did. There was the uh, obviously the, the, the production, health and welfare and, and benefits of trees research. Uh, there's various other bits and pieces of, of ammonia research which you discussed. And the other was, was biodiversity work, looking at the different biodiversity. And that's, uh, and that's a mixed message on the biodiversity work. That was done with the Woodland Trust and Paul again, just surveying detailed surveys of biodiversity on farms. Uh, for the first few years, when you've got open, sunny areas between the rows of trees, very good for bats. The whole of the planted area becomes woodland edge, effectively, because you have these alleyways up and down through the, through the woodland, so it's very good for bats and, and, and bugs. But that tends to go away as the canopy coalesces, and you get more um, bird species coming in, as a, and less of the in, invertebrates and bats, but you get much more woodland-resident-type birds, uh, of, a lot of which in the UK are red-list species. So the ones that are in danger of um, 
becoming extinct or certainly red list. So it's that was quite an interesting piece of research to show that benefit because it's, it's not something that farmers really see or anybody really think about, but it, it clearly works. But other than that, that's kind of we've t- talked about most of the research, I guess. Great. Okay. Well, David, thank you so much for your time. Uh, and thank you so much for all these you know, fascinating points that we covered today. What we have to say is plant trees, don't we? Thank you for making it until the end. I uh, really hope you enjoyed the episode. As usual, you'll find all the relevant links below and you can get in touch with us through our website or social media. 